I'm in Oregon. I'm about five miles from Portland. Oh, nice. So do you spend much time downtown in the evenings recently? <laughs> not recently. <laughs> not in the last 92 days or so. But <laughs> I actually have an office downtown that we've closed now until next July. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've all been working from home. Yeah, it's too bad Josh wasn't here because you could have exchanged stories. He uh, has an office in Philadelphia, and when he was walking there to do a session with us, there were police cars on fire. And his building said that he had to leave because they were, you know, enforcing a wow. curfew. Amongst many professional stories to exchange, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's right. interesting to have to share these as well. Sure. We've added elements to discussions about where we work. And six months ago, <laughs> we were adding them, but it was related to a pandemic. And now many of us are adding them related to civil unrest. Uh, and then you combine the two and it's day by day at this point. Yeah, we'll talk about a little later, you know, about bringing calm. And, and I, I just need to acknowledge right off the front before we get started that I, uh, a confession to, you know, to say to the listeners is I, I was very undandy last night. Uh, this, this moving company decided that they were going to be moving furniture into the complex that I'm at, at 11 o'clock at night with like the mechanical lift gate and the beep, beep, beep of the truck. And so I didn't handle myself as dandy as I could. So just uh, an announcement, apologies to those who uh, who were on the other end of my frustration. But it's it's part of that thing. You get cooped up. You don't get the chance to talk to people in, in real life. And uh, sometimes it boils over. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be trying better. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm a little groggy. Because <laughs> um, because I dealt with it by they're not going to stop unpacking they have to do their job so my dandy lady Joy and I decided to stay up and drink <laughs> and watch episodes of The West Wing so <laughs> The West Wing is the best preparation for these conversations yes yeah, exactly now we're all experiencing that you know we're uncomfortable and other people are uncomfortable so we're equally uncomfortable and can't decide how we want to adjust to that and. We have roller coasters where days we have a lot more grace and other days we're just ravages. Like we, <laughs> we're just angry at everybody and everything. And hopefully that mellows out. But I share that. I share those experiences also. Yeah, it's a, it's a human being thing. And that's, that's kind of, you know, why we're here doing the show. And I think on that note, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Modern Dandies Guide to Manliness. And I am... Very, very excited. If uh, you hadn't noticed, listener, we have uh, a voice coming at you, which is far prettier than mine. We have uh, with us Rebecca Tweed on the conversation, and uh, I'm joined, as always, by Liam, and we have Mudcat as well. So welcome to today's conversation where we've got uh, a chance to take a new perspective. We've talked previously about the importance of local government and we want to recognize that we, you know, we're four white men who are left leaning to a degree, more some than others. I prefer big old hippie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to be more inclusive. And uh, so we're very fortunate to have Rebecca with us today. And we're going to talk about politics and participation. So not just local government, but just looking more at at politics in general with hopefully more, uh, more, variance in opinions, but I'm curious to see what we're going to agree on and, and what we're going to have disagreements on. But before we get into all that, Rebecca, thank you for being with us. Could you 
you know, just by way of introduction, give us a little background on how you became involved in politics and, and then becoming a political consultant. Yeah, well, absolutely. And again, thanks for having me here today. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, I've been interested in politics for as far back as I can remember, uh, actually going back to 1992 when I was nine years old. Uh, You know, there wasn't a lot we could do together as a family. We grew up pretty low income. Uh, We didn't do a lot of fun entertainment or a lot of vacationing. But one thing my parents always made sure we did was watch Jeopardy and watch the news. And so I remember watching the news back during the the presidential election between Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. And I just found it fascinating, the energy, the speeches, where the country was on it, and was very frustrated when I learned that I wouldn't be allowed to vote. After all this work I'd put into watching it and choosing a candidate, I couldn't vote. And so instead of just moving on my merry way as a child, I decided I'd do something about it, hosted my first election. I petitioned the principal of my elementary school to let me use the cafeteria for election events. And, you know, for two weeks before the the election, I had students giving speeches about which presidential candidates they liked and why, the importance of voting, the importance of getting involved, what they would do if they were president, set up polling stations, you know, with number two pencils and post-it notes. And we held an election for president. You know, Bill Clinton won uh, by 17 votes, which my very conservative parents have not let me live down yet. Um, (laughs) uh, Still comes up at Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, I just was always really engaged, you know, from that point forward and just really thought it was interesting that we had a environment in a country where people could play a role in change. And that carried itself into high school, where I went to Stanford for a little bit to debate the death penalty. Uh, At one point, I actually taught the government class, the civics class in my high school, moved on to Syracuse for my undergraduate degree, where I studied politics pretty intensely. Uh, My focus was on international politics and the global economy and global environment and how do we all work together? What does democracy look like? What do rights look like? And, you know, eventually that turned into coming back to Oregon on vacation. I had coffee with a political consultant who said, you know, why don't you stay for one year and work on some campaigns and see if it's something you like. Uh, That was back in 2005. And I told myself I'd stay for one year. And now 15 years later and three companies and 67 campaigns, I'm still here fighting the fight to get people elected, work on issues I care about, and, you know, run a company with folks that care about doing the same thing. So we're obviously in the dead heat of the election cycle, and it's uh, just as exciting as it was when it was my first campaign. I've always been curious. I, I know we've, we've chatted about it as friends. Just for the listener, what steered you towards working on primarily Republican campaigns? That's correct. Um, And I would say, you know, my distinction with that is that I'm a consultant who happens to be a Republican, not a Republican consultant. But Mm -hmm. a majority of the issues I've worked on or or candidates have been Republicans or they have been, you know, your air quote unquote, you know, conservative types of issues. You know, that's the household that I grew up in. And that certainly has changed and grown over time. But my parents are very conservative. They actually you know, the big joke is that I'm the liberal in the family. And I'm like, Mom, really? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm hired to work on these issues. 
Um, I think it comes down to one fundamental belief system that I have, which is personal responsibility. And I watched my parents work through low income times to a time when they could afford better things and work very hard. And that's not to say that other political leanings don't share that. But in my space, I felt like Republicans best reflected what I thought would be good policy to encourage personal responsibility. Now, that's to say, you know, I will always work on a campaign for people that I believe in and not people I don't. I have a lot of, you know, non-Republican candidates, but we have to share the same fundamental belief systems. And, you know, for the most part, that's been that's been helpful for me. I would say that I don't always make the Republican Party happy. You know, there are a lot of circles in Oregon <laughs> where I'm a I'm a progressive Republican, but that's actually given me the ability to share my message about what my belief systems are and my policies in spaces you wouldn't normally get invited to. You know, kind of being the token Republican in Oregon has a lot of benefits, actually, that I don't think I would have if it was a staunch party line platform that really we're seeing around the country right now. And it's interesting that you mentioned the personal responsibility aspect of it, because I believe as as dandies and, and Liam and Mudcat, don't let me speak for you, but that's uh, certainly one of the things that we discuss often here is owning the responsibility of your actions, thinking through the intent of your choices and having alignment uh, amongst those things. So it's interesting to hear, you know, something that I, as a person who would say I'm a Democrat to hear that I completely agree with everything you just said about the personal responsibility aspect of what choices are you making and, and how is that impacting yourself and others. So that's great. I, I really like that. And I think it's also really interesting to follow that thread of acting respectfully, inclusively towards others with differing views, because I think at the moment we're seeing a lot of the opposite of that, which is people seeking to dominate or impose rather than debate and discuss and and yeah i get that uh that there's a lot of this is to do with you know getting your sound bites and and getting people to put their their hands in their pockets to to donate and and there's there's easy ways of of generating that through through creating a sense of outrage how do you see that playing out in what you do particularly in somewhere like like Oregon as i said where there's it's notionally i think been a sort of bit of a democratic heartland. So how do you then either avoid or use that that divisiveness or, or building inclusion in your in your strategy and your approach? That's a fantastic question. And I'd say, you know, we aren't the notion of a democratic heartland. We are. <laughs> I mean, this, <laughs> the state is, is pretty blue. Uh, and that's okay with me. You know, here's one of the perspectives I take. And I, I think it's what needs to be driving the narratives going forward is unfortunately what we're seeing right now is in an attempt to make our positions better, instead of focusing on that, we're putting the other side down. And one example I use for that is I'm a very proud redhead, right? Just stamp ginger right on my forehead and I'm fine with that. If you want to tell me that blondes are better than redheads, you're not going to get anywhere by telling me all the reasons that redheads are bad. You have to convince me that being a blonde is better by talking about being a blonde. And I know that's like a very 
you know, sort of let's talk about women's hair color, but it's a good example, I think, mm-hmm. because of how personal that is for me. And so if you're going to convince me you can't do it by putting me down, you have to do it by lifting your argument up. And I've mm-hmm. seen over the last probably eight years where those narratives have shifted instead of people focusing on why they think their issues are better, their positions are better. They're trying to make other people feel bad for having a certain position. And that's the partisanship I think we're seeing nowadays. I don't remember the last time that I saw Republicans talk about why Republicans are great without putting Democrats down. And I don't remember the last time I saw Democrats tell me why I should become a Democrat without telling me that they despise Trump, right? And that's a break in conversations. And in social worlds, we would never do that with each other, right? There's no other world where we would interact with one another by putting each other down to make a point. But for politics, that's become the new norm. And I think that's where the break in, in understanding that we actually do have a lot in common, And that's where I'm seeing a a huge reflection of the negativity and the inability for people to even get in the door. You know, another example or analogy that I like to use is I'm a huge football fan. It's a very difficult time for me to not have football on. Um, And I'm a big Dallas Cowboys fan. If I walk into a bar and- This is something we disagree on very much. (laughs) Very strongly. And Wes is just wrong. I mean, I'm not even going to try to play nice like I just said. But if I walk into a bar and there's prime seating and, you know, television spot and it's right next to a Washington football team fan who's our arch nemesis, I'm not going to get the seat and I'm not going to get the free drink if I walk up and and tell him that his football team is the worst team in the history of football. I'm only going to get there if I talk about what we have in common. Why was that a bad call from the ref? How long have we watched football? Why do we like it? Blah, blah, blah. And then a little bit into the conversation, I can say, oh, and by the way, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and we're America's team. At that point, I've built a rapport. (laughs) I've built some credibility because I know how to talk about the game. I've built respect with that person by talking to them. Then we're probably not going to just split ways and he's going to kick me out, right? That ability to have a conversation nowadays about politics, knowing football and politics are extremely different. They used to be. I think that's one of the one of the other breakdowns that we have in this conversation about where we stand in politics in general. So, you know, from the sound of this, Rebecca and I came into this world at about the same time. Uh, My first federal races were in 2006 and spent 2008 on the West coast go West young Democrat. That was what, you know, we were told, (laughs) In those days, and you know, I remember the the race to beat Gordon Smith. Uh, I was in Seattle for that, and was in. I worked for Move On on the primary campaign against Merkley mm. for, and I've forgotten the guy. Uh, he had one of the best political ads ever. The guy with the hook, Stephen something. Steve Novick. Yep, he's still around. <laughs> yeah. And I would describe, and some of this is from the difference in our places in the universe. I mean, my first national gig was working for Move On and SEIU. Um, mm-hmm. We invented the hyperpartisan negativity. Right, we were the people who, you know, came to politics with a value orientation that said. 
that we have to recognize each other's humanity first. And I can't recognize your humanity if you're trying to pass laws that say I'm a criminal. So we come from very different places about this and have had very different experiences with it. The analogies between sports and politics, this is a a constant source of tension in my firm because we have, uh, my boss is very into sports, football, basketball, baseball, uses the baseball analogies all the time. He sold a client with a baseball story the other day. Turns out they're both Red Sox fans. And he, I've been chasing this for 60 days. And, and he shows up and makes a joke about the Red Sox. And, you know, signed in 15 seconds uh, what I'd been chasing for 60 days. And he hadn't let me forget it yet. <laughs> the, yes, but Mudcat, we dress better. Yes. <laughs> um, the... When, yeah, we start making politics and sports analogies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally the difference between a game, something that we're doing on television for shits and giggles, and how we're defining our shared experience and our humanity. Bodily autonomy is in the stage here. And yeah, it, I don't think they're the same. I wouldn't suggest that they're the same. My point is that In Oregon, as a Republican and a Republican woman, if I want to be able to have a conversation with folks, I can't lead off with our differences. Mm -hmm. And the sports analogy is a good one because, you know, as Wes joked, you know, immediately that's something we disagree on. But my point being more the humanity and how we interact with each other and the breakdown in people walking in right away into a political environment and just saying, this is what I am and this is why you're wrong is not the way that I've found has been the best way to have an influence in Oregon, whether it's for myself as Rebecca Tweed or it's for clients or it's for the perception, I think, of how politics works. And I'll, I'll use a really quick example before we pop forward. So the head of the Democratic party here in Oregon, the communications director and I are often put into rooms together to speak, right, to give both sides. And we're very good friends and and respect each other a lot. Often I will ask folks in, in an environment, whether it's a campaign school or a classroom, say, you know, write, you know, your party affiliation at the top of this piece of paper and then write your top five issues that you care about, priorities, issues, whatever they are. Leave it anonymous. When we're done with the exercise, Almost 99% of those lists are exactly the same. They're mm-hmm. different. They're different priorities, maybe. Maybe someone has education, somebody has environment, somebody has tax policy or whatever, but they're almost always exactly the same. The only way to then have a conversation about what those problems are, those solutions are, is to then remove that party name off that piece of paper and say, how do we talk about education? How do mm-hmm. we talk about the environment? If we all of a sudden just said, okay, all the Republicans on one side and the Democrats on the other, tensions are going to flare before we get to what that list is. Why do you think it's become so popular to talk in terms of those sort of narrow stereotypes rather than present a more inclusive view of policy and positions? Because I think I think you're right. I mean, my my observation is not just in the US but elsewhere, politics has become regarded as like reality TV and that the people want it to be entertaining when my view in reality is that it should be boring. I think we should make, make governing boring again because <laughs> you know, there is a lot of complexity and there is a lot of important issues that get lost when 
the two sides are presented as teams or tribes and presented in monolithic terms with the Democrats being the liberal coastal elites and the Republicans being, you know, the champions of, of traditional values. In reality, they need to govern for all Americans. And that means having policies and positions that span more than just the screaming hyperbole of the narrow bases at the ends of the spectrum. And that seems, and given that I work in Washington, D.C., and work in the government sector, that doesn't really seem to be happening in any any meaningful form. It's hyperpartisanship and stacking and, and the edge issues rather than what you're describing, which to me would be a more inclusive view and a more nuanced view of, of policy and positions that would actually enable a, de- a debate or a decent discussion. I love that you mentioned that, and I think that's exactly where we need to try to get to. And and you and Mudcat will both recognize this. You know, 15 years ago, when you were looking at running a campaign and you were looking at the spectrum of your voters in your area, it used to be that there were about 17% on either side that you could ignore. You either had 17% of conservatives that were so strongly conservative that as long as you had an R by your name, they were going to vote for you and you didn't need to spend any time campaigning. And you had 17% so far on the left that you would never win them over. It didn't matter what you did. And so you got to play with this middle. In reality, when you look at polling that's been done, you look at psychological studies and sociological studies in the last three to four years, that extreme has actually lessened, right? Mm. The extremes on the sides now are about eight to nine percent but they are much louder, right? They're much more aggressive and they're much more intensely extreme. But folks like I think all of us on the phone who have, who have been involved in this have become more moderate. That moderate or that tempered, I should say, audience has actually increased, but we're tired. We're tired of all the noise and we don't want to join the fight. So we've become quieter. So it's kind of this like, we don't like that extreme message. We don't like the hyper-partisanship. We barely recognize our own parties nowadays, or you're immediately like I am, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a Republican, but I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I feel like hmm. I have to say that every conversation, <laughs> uh, right? Because I don't want to be in that, that side that's making the noise. And I think that's a reflection of Honestly, I think social media plays a huge role. It's the clickbait. It's the seven-second attention span. And the more that people in the middle continue to not be heard and continue to make those policy ideas or real ideas for inclusivity or thoughtfulness, you know, we feel like we just can't join the argument right now because it's so exhausting. And I think it will take a little bit of time for that to work itself out. No social movements happened in, in one year right? Mm. It always takes a little bit of time. And unfortunately, right now, you know, I think it's really hard. It's really exhausting. And it's these are really difficult discussions we're having as a country. And I think everybody has got to take a second to say, is this really helpful? And that balance of being elected is challenging, too. We have some of the best legislators on all sides in Oregon right now, or, you know, lower elected officials or whatever, Mm. that are being primaried out because they're not part of that extreme. And that eight or 9% are the ones doing all of the work. And it's unfortunate, you know, I'm seeing Democrat legislators get primaried that I actually think have done a great job and that should be in the legislature. 
we have Republicans that aren't conservative enough. And it's like, well, what the, what do you want them to do next? Like you need to have thoughtful Republicans because we have to all work together. It's frustrating. That was the, the danger of unleashing the rage beast Mm -hmm. is that you lose control of it. Mm -hmm. And you can look back through a couple of hundred years of history and the the people who stoke these kind of is a policyless programs campaigns that that are simply based on detracting the other rather than building something or, or putting forward something better. When you lose control of that, it's fun at the beginning because you suddenly have this passionate base. But the trouble with extremism is it breeds even more extremism, mm-hmm. and so it's like. Um, I'll actually use some some white Christian terrorists as an example. The Irish Republican Army, it was a, a relatively small, it's kind of interesting, you know, they, they fought the British Army largely to a standstill when there were only a few hundred of them in a territory of Britain with an hour's flight of the capital. However, there was a program of, of imprisoning and, and in some cases targeting of the leaders, the same way the same thing happened with the PLO and some of those groups as well. And then the next group through were even more extreme. And then there were, which is like the the real IRA, uh, you know, the the IRA spun off the provost, the provost spun off the real IRA, and then the real IRA then splintered into groups that were saying, well, they're still not extreme enough. And when you lose track of what you're fighting for and simply fight is when, or, or simply base everything off off a rage and anger and violence, which is a a dangerous track to go down and dangerous rhetoric to use. Once you lose control of that, you lose the ability to effectively lead and, and govern. And that's that I think is a it's a real concern and something that you know somehow we need to demilitarize, de-weaponize the language. This is why I said make governing boring again and get back to the point where people aren't turning on programs to be entertained by politics or to be outraged, which is basically the same thing. You get uh-huh. an adrenaline rush from it. And instead are going, oh, that's boring, but competently so. Sure. So let's promote C-SPAN more often. Absolutely. <laughs> that's where the real work's being done. <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I I have the the background of, of not really being involved in campaigns at all, but through the technology that I work with i'm usually there with the within the chambers within the council chambers training people on using technology they've purchased that um is part of making the sausage you know and and it's the voting and it's everything they do once they get elected and it's so interesting to watch the interaction of politicians when they're not running for anything (laughs) and they're just there to just do the job that they've been elected to do you don't you know, so, sometimes, you know, as I put my foot in my mouth on my birthday saying I hadn't heard any impassioned speeches yet and Mudcat very quickly pointed out that some of my favorite were the ones that he had written. Uh, but the, <laughs> uh, and they are good, but, but that's, be, that's me admitting right now that I'm a junkie for that excitement. And that's a negative thing that I have to own of, yeah, I want to be you know, we, we joke about the West Wing. It's like, I want every single politician to be Rob Lowe and Martin Sheen, like level of oration. And that's not fair to anybody. And and so you've got to take that step back and just 
hey, look at the results. You know, how are they working together and, and moving forward? Well, let me throw... You're going to have competence without... Sorry, Mudcat, Mudcat, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 Liam, do your bit, because I'm going to blow the whole okay. thing up. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> you, can have, you, can have, you can have competence without oration, and, I, and I, I, I completely get why it's important. I get social media, I get all of those things. I, I think the just just coming back onto you can speak well and and still present content and policy. You don't have to be content free and have people like focusing on your your smile and your hairstyle to be a good politician. You can you can present well and speak clearly and articulate policy and execute your duties in a in a compelling way. It just doesn't have to be based on on outrage and extremism. I mean, case in point, so back, so when I was growing up in Australia, there were two main political parties, you know, Labor and Liberals, and uh, and then there were some independents and, and a, a small Green Party that you know, sometimes held the balance of power, parliamentary system, kind of interesting. And an interesting thing happened through the 90s and into the early 2000s, which was those parties really, and Australia likes technocrats, we like technocratic government. The extreme wings of those parties started to get try and be more vocal. They, they wanted to be more extremist and drag the rest of the party with them. Instead, what happened was that those extreme groups splintered off. And this is, I think, one of the constraints of the American system in not allowing multiple parties, mm-hmm. in that the parties end up being taken over by their extreme wings and not being able to effectively swing and position or get even get any any particular coverage towards the center. Now in the last election, Australian election, I'm going to say there were something like 19 parties on the federal ballot. And some of them were bizarre. I'm just going to put that out there. However, it did mean when you looked at the core parties that Labour and the Liberals still being the the largest parties when you, when you looked at their core platforms there was some there was more like what rebecca was describing you you were you were seeing two positions on a common issue so when you looked at education there was well we think that education should be more this way and here is this policy and we think that edu- this part of the education policy you know, on on you know school curriculum or whatever it was we believe in this and so you're able to go down and have a reasonable discussion even pretty quickly on which side you, you you fell on and most Australians myself included are somewhere in the middle is that I didn't reliably vote labor and I didn't reliably vote liberal I had friends on both sides and new politicians on both sides Tasmania is a small place and I would make that determination at, at each level based on the fact that I could see that and that, that I could see that difference between policy positions and I think the majority of people in the middle of America are genuinely interested and they're not being fed that. And I think, yes, they are quiet and that would be consistent with being one of those people stuck in the middle and feeling like a mushroom, you know, kept on the dark and fed on bullshit rather than treated like <laughs> someone who is valuably needing to make a decision in in a few times. Now, note that I can't actually vote because I'm, I'm still a permanent resident, not an American citizen. But if I were... That would certainly be how I was feeling, and it's not a it's not a new sensation. I had a similar sensation at various times in Australia and in in the UK, where I felt the parties were too busy lobbing culture bombs at each other to actually substantively 
present an argument for their their case to govern. What I do think we need to do, the moderate right now, and I, I never even liked that word because I, I always feel like it's squishy and believe <laughs> me, I'm not soft on a single decision I make in my life. But we have a responsibility as this group that I think is the quiet majority, or we are the quiet majority, to make those changes that need to happen come election day so that we don't have the people pushing the aggressive agendas out there. There is a lot of, there's a lot to be upset about right now. There is a lot to be angry about. And I think we all feel that we just don't talk about it as loudly as everybody else. And we have a responsibility to do that come election day. And that's the challenge is how do you get that majority to feel like they're being heard to feel like their vote's going to make a difference and change this perception. And sometimes it's not even a perception. There are people that are elected that don't mm. that don't deserve to be there, that shouldn't be there from either party, both party, no party. We have lots of third parties mm-hmm. that aren't, you know, major parties in Oregon that have the right mindset. So we can't or we won't battle it out in social media, which seems to be the space, but election day is the place to do it. And, you know, I'll give one more example before I think, you know, there's probably going to be some debate back and forth on this, but I'm typically hired to run campaigns that are extremely challenging, right? Get a Republican elected in a Democrat seat or pass a initiative or stop an initiative that a majority of the state agrees with until I get involved in the campaign, right? It's It's to change the dynamics that we have. I'm actually sitting in my first campaign cycle where I'm working with Republicans that I support in deep Republican country. And I will say it's more challenging for me right now to run those campaigns than Republicans and Democrat seats, because I'm seeing examples of some of the extremism and not a lot of it, right? But candidates that could easily jump into the rhetoric game and don't, which is why I've chosen to work with them, but they Mm. could. And so finding the nuance of Yes, we are conservatives and yes, we are Republicans, but we also support wearing a mask and not losing votes is challenging. Uh, It's harder than I thought it would be. Mm. But the candidates I'm working with this cycle don't take for granted they're in Republican seats. They want to have good policy come out. They need to be friends with the governor. They need to be friends with Democrats on the other side because Republicans in Oregon are in a super minority position everywhere right now. The only way you get anything done is to build those relationships, but it is hard for them to be able to do that when you're not sure what the base is going to do when you show up to a a virtual town hall to talk about it, right? It's an interesting place to be. So I'm going to, like I said, I'm just going to (laughs) blow all this up. There there was a, uh, as much as we talk about the kumbaya in uh, the West Wing is the best example of this sort of politics where, you know, it's, it's the Trent Lott strategy. You don't have to take a whole loaf when half is available. If we're not angry about the deal, it didn't get done right. You give a little, I'll give a little, and we'll all get along and have the opportunity to do another deal next week. That sort of politics assumes rational players on both sides. It assumes shared values and shared interests. There's a thought experiment from, you know, back in the early days of the blogosphere that says, imagine that you and I, I ask you out on a date and you say, I would say yes. 
You should. I'm a so great far. Dad. I'd say yes. I'm interested. <clears throat> Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I say, great. There's an Italian restaurant, and you say I'd rather have tire rims and anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> If you and I are negotiating, we are trying to find a common cause between spaghetti and anthrax. There are so many political positions, issues in which we have research. We know the the time in which we have to guess about what's best for our communities is over. We have mm-hmm. think tanks. We have issue organizations. We have policy papers. We know what makes good education. We know what makes stronger schools. We know what improves test scores. And when we have conversations about education from a public policy sphere, I bring spaghetti and I say, let's increase teacher pay. Let's increase free and reduced lunches. Let's make sure that you know, there are washing machines in schools so that every kid who wants opportunity to be educated can come here and be supported. And Republicans come to the table and said, I'm going to take all that shit and I'm going to give you a private school or a charter voucher. It's spaghetti and anthrax. We know what works and the Republicans are not bringing, they're bringing anthrax to dinner. It's not rational on both sides. My disagreement, just in the basis of what you just said, is by throwing out just Republicans in general, right? That's not the Mm. case. In Oregon, and you know, because you've worked here, right? And it's it's different across the board, but... I don't work in Oregon nearly as much as I'd like. <laughs> I love Oregon. Well, and I here's what I think is the difference, is that the fact that you said Republicans bothers me, because that's the big bucket, right, that I think is the problem. And mm-hmm. the second is that thinking re- Republicans don't want those things also. I think teachers should be paid more in Oregon, but my challenge with it is that Portland Public Schools, for example, laid off, you know, 79 people, but administration got a $200 million raise because we haven't fixed the retirement program in Oregon yet because we have administrative costs that are through the roof. That's because, you know, blah, 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 policies need to be fixed. But you and I will not disagree that teachers need to be paid more. The solution in my book is not add more taxes make things more expensive so that more money is going into it, it's fixed the system we have, right? When 65% of the costs in Oregon, just again, as an example, in our schools are going towards PERS that needs to be reformed or going towards administrative costs instead of into that classroom, you bet I'm going to disagree with something that then says, hey, you need to pay more taxes because we need to pay for this. Taxes would add more money to the system, but it doesn't fix the problem. So, That's just an example. And I fully admit that when I come to this table, I am coming with outrageous things. I am saying that the state should raise children, that we should be having all of the meals at the school. Every teacher should be able to have access to things that happen in the home, that we should be, you know, replacing parents with people who understand children professionally, right? Like, and that is its own version of outrageous (laughs) bullshit. And teachers should have tenure and tenure and work for unions and then nobody should ever be fired. Right. Like I, I come with my own version of bullshit for this. But you you say that you object to using the label Republicans. Who's setting the committee chair? Right? Who 
it's the parties. It is the party infrastructure that control what happens sure. in the legislature. And my, I'm not saying you're wrong that Republicans don't like it. I'm saying the general swipe that you have one thought and Republicans don't like it is what I'm trying to change just as myself and my little company in Oregon to change that conversation so that you start saying some Republicans or a majority of Republicans or Republicans that I've met when I've worked in Oregon, right? Like adding a qualifier instead of a broad swipe. And I, the same has to go on, yeah. on all sides. Um, and that's why I've said often I'm more progressive Republican, right? I broke through working from candidates to ballot measure issues by working on the marriage equality campaign and the anti-discrimination campaign, they couldn't find another Republican that was willing to do it. And I'm like, I have nothing to lose and I care about the issue. Those types of things well, have you. to change the conversation and mm. being able to walk into a room and say, it's not all Republicans. And I know you didn't mean it that way, but at some point, the way we're changing. Oh, no, I'm straw manning, <laughs> right? This is not personal. But, this is, this yeah, is sport. But that's the conversation that I feel has to change. And, you know, Wes, way back to asking why I started working with Republicans. Part of the reason I've continued that is to try, maybe there's a little bit of idealism left in me that says at some point when I'm done with working in Oregon politics, my only legacy will be that we've stopped stereotyping parties. That people don't assume mm. because I walk in as a white Republican woman, Southern Baptist pastor's kid in a pair of Prada heels that I'm a certain way, right? I'm also a vegan. I also swear way too much. I love sports. Like there's all sorts of things about me that are totally different and happen to believe in marriage equality and climate change. I can still be a Republican mm. and have those perspectives. So 20 years from now, if I eventually quit, that's what I want to leave is that people like you who are super intelligent, obviously, and very involved don't just say Republicans right out the bat, there's a qualifier. The same way there has to be going to the other side of the party also. I don't think all Democrats want to raise taxes. I don't think all Democrats hate business. But we're training ourselves to speak that way because it's shorter and quicker. We have to take a second mm. if we're going to communicate. Will the dandies discover a new love for Republicans? Will Mudcat share his secret spaghetti recipe? And will I have anything insightful to add to this brilliant conversation about the importance of politics? Find out next time on the Modern Dandies Guide to Manliness, the stunning conclusion to our conversation with Rebecca Tweed. Email us at themoderndandy.life. Okay. That's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplanes And Lenny Bruce is not afraid Okay, I have a hurricane Listen to yourself, churn World serves its own needs Don't misserve your own needs Speed it up and not speed Grunt, no strength The lattice starts to clatter With the fear of height Down height Wire and a fire Represent the seven games And a government for hire In a combat site After wasn't coming In a hurry With the furies breathing down Team by team reporters baffled Trump tethered crop Look at that low plane Fine then Uh-oh Overflow population common group But it'll do Save yourself Serve yourself World serves its own needs Listen to your heart bleed Tell me with the rapture And the reverend And the right Right You vitriotic patriotic Slam fight Bright light Feeling pretty sight It's the end of the world As we know it It's the end of the world As we know it It's the end 
Six o'clock TV hour, don't get caught in foreign tower. Slash and burn, return, listen to yourself churn. Lock them up in uniform, book burning, bloodletting, every motive escalate. Automotive incinerate, light a candle, light a motive, step down, step down. Watch your heel crush, crush, uh uh. This means no fear, cavalier, renegade, and steering clear. Return them in, turn them in, turn them in, lies. Offer me solutions, offer me alternatives, and I decline. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the Continental drift divide, mountains sitting in a line. Leonard Bernstein, Leonid Brezhnev, Lenny Bruce, and Lester Banks. Birthday party, cheesecake, jelly bean, boom. You symbiotic, patriotic, slam button neck, right? Right. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the It's the end.